You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Global Trade This Week, GTTW, as we refer to it. I am one of your hosts, Doug Draper. This week, I'm residing in uh, Denver, Colorado, and my compadre on the other side of the United States is my good friend, Mr. Pete Mento. Pete, what's going down in New Hampshire, my friend? Hey, buddy. Uh, just hating the government like everybody <laughs> else in the state. Just, you know, sitting here uh, doing everything we can to not pay taxes. Um, but uh, I was just explaining tax time is a coming. And, um, you know, as per usual, I'm, uh, you know, sitting here dreading the annual filleting that I will take from the good people at the IRS. But, mm-hmm. We can talk about happier things, pal. I'm, yeah. I'm sitting on my couch. Probably not the best lighting, I imagine. Um, beaming through the back windows. It's unfortunate you can't see beautiful Mount Kinnunik or the Amazon. Amazon. The Merrimack River. The yeah. Amazon. Where'd that come from? Uh, uh, behind <laughs> me. Um, but it is, a, it is a cloudy, overcast day here. Live free or die, as always. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you were, were you one of those guys... Um, whenever a paper was due in college or high school and you just waited until the last possible moment no. and just cranked it out over a 24 hour span? No. Uh, if there was a paper that was due, I would normally do it. I had the syllabus. I would do it weeks in advance. But I just hate giving the government money. Um, <laughs> Everything pivots I, back to uncle Sam this time. Yeah. Oh no. Sometimes Doug, I will wake up in just a tax rage at like three o'clock in the morning. Like, Oh my God, withholding. Like it just happens out of nowhere. I just get so angry when I when I travel to other states and they have sales tax. I'm like, why? Like, why? Why on earth? What is this? Do I need this that bad? Mm-hmm. Like I've I have intentionally not bought things and said I'll just get it when I get home because I I hate paying taxes. We have no income tax. We have no sales tax. This is nirvana. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know what's wrong with the rest of this country. Mm. Just, you know, we don't have a tax problem. We have a spending problem. We just spend money on so many stupid things. But mm. that's not what this show's about, Doug. No, I was about to say, I'm trying to think of a pivot away from that into uh, this week's episode. Yeah, the pivot so, is shut up, Pete. Let's get back to trade. Yes. So, so that yeah. I, I kicked it off. So that means you're topic number one. Yeah. Um, topic number one is, is funny. Okay. So, um, I am not really, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a ticky talky guy. I'm not an, an Instagrammer as it were, but I do love the Twitters and mostly because it's like, it's like quick hits, you know, um, not a big poster on the Twitters. I do post a lot on LinkedIn, but not really on Twitter, but I do follow a lot of, of just straight nerd shots, you know, it's just like shots of tequila of, of, of financial nerd stuff. And, um, one of my favorite things to follow are, um, are, are just the big financial organizations, the World Bank, the IMF, because when they do something, they put it on Twitter before they really put it anywhere else, even their own websites. So today um, I was reading the new IMF blog. Because... Yeah, I know, Doug. I know. I know. I'm a super nerd, man. Uh, also, the IMF's uh, stability paper that came out today. You can go ahead. Mm-hmm. You can double nerd me, bro. I don't care. <laughs> um, 
but the new stability paper that came out today. But the blog was, for the most part, man, like it was the weakest thing ever. It's like the IMF is so worried about saying anything substantial that they have to water it down. It's like, well, don't, don't say anything that could be misconstrued. The last thing we want is the heat coming down on us. So it's like, hey, listen, interest rates will go down when inflation comes down. It's like, oh, you don't say. Mm-hmm. In other news, fish smells fishy. Water is wet, you know. But there, but there was one. There was one thing about it. Um, there was a couple things in the piece that got my attention. But um, one of the first things that really got my attention was that um, they were they were saying that it, it might actually get lower or as low as pre-COVID levels. And if you talk to anybody, most people are saying no, they're not. Like the the interest rates that we're seeing now, as inflated as they are, you should probably get used to interest rates being a little higher than they were before this latest banking binge of interest rates. Like it seems like there's almost a um, they're trying to get us used to interest rates being a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to get back to that super low, crazy low interest rate that we saw for a long, long time. But they were saying, no, they're probably going to get lower. So then I read the, um, because dorky, dork, dork, I read the stability paper today. And here's what the IMF said, which again, they're not usually the people that say a lot of crazy stuff, Doug. But the economist, the IMF said, because we think there's going to be like some serious instability in global banking. And we're probably going to see like really low interest rates to get people back into buying houses and trying to get money back into markets. And Mm -hmm. so even the IMF is thinking that the global banks are probably going to have a tough time of it. And a lot of that will be driven by commercial real estate. So even the IMF is like, this could be a two to three year recovery and we're probably facing a bubble bursting. And um, yeah, we could see some ugly, I don't know if I believe it, man. Um, But yeah. Yeah, even the IMF is freaking out a little bit, Doug. Yeah, I think that's some 25-year-old kid that's doing their marketing and is asking or encouraging them to put uh, stuff out uh, into the uh, www.com to uh, stay Doug. stay relevant. Doug, nobody at the IMF is like under 80. Like these are these are <laughs> that's what I mean. Uh, you know, but I'm telling you, Doug, like if we if you and I ever went to the offices of the IMF, like they've probably, you know, those those protein drinks that they give the elderly insure. Mm-hmm. Like I'm pretty sure those are in the Coke machines. Like, <laughs> like like everybody's on their walkers going from desk to desk. It's it's like yeah. super smart really accomplished economists and people into global, uh, you know, global affairs, just sitting around stroking their beards, opining. And they, they love going to work because they have no social life. Like, mm-hmm. you know, basically older versions of me. <laughs> Hanging around these really nice offices somewhere in Geneva. Yeah. So well, that's, yeah. that's why they have the, uh, the, the young buck there telling them to, uh, to push content out, even though there is no <clears throat> meaningful value. But, um, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I always say I'm this uh, simple kid from Kansas, but I, I don't see how anybody could allow interest rates to go back to where they were. I mean, that just kind of repositions ourselves. You know, you and I spoke about the, um, uh, the roaring twenties 
um, as far as the 2020s versus the 1920s. And I, I don't see people going that direction and risking the whole fallout that we're experiencing now because of the uh, the consumption and, and the free spend. But you know, like I said, I'm just a kid from well, Kansas looking at it for face value. Well, Doug, I'm a, I'm a kid from Texas and New Hampshire. And um, what happened at the end of the Roaring Twenties? What? The, which which twenties? What happened at the end of the war, Roaring tw- the nineteen twenties? Yeah, a bank collapsed. <laughs> the <laughs> economy risk. shit down its legs because yeah. everybody overspent and overextended themselves. Yeah. And if it weren't for World War II, this economy would have crapped itself even worse. I mean, essentially. It took a banking collapse, a restructuring of our entire financial establishment, a global war, and America reconstructing itself to to a manufacturing juggernaut, an export juggernaut. I mean, it, it was a banking collapse, a financial collapse, a stock market collapse, mass unemployment, and the and the New Deal that took America to recover. So I don't know, man. I think that people are are, are spending money they don't have after spending a whole bunch of money they got from a government that didn't have any money either. So mm. sooner or later, I mean, we can't just quantitative ease ourselves out of this problem. And, uh, and it's getting creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Good topic. Good topic. Uh, well, speaking of 20 year olds that are pushing buttons for the, uh, for the IMF, my first topic is related to um, generation Z. This is a little bit off supply chain, but I'm going to pivot back. Um, retail consumer buying habits with Generation Z, right? So I saw this article and I'm like, I think we can spin this into supply chain. So I'm just going to throw out a couple of bullet points uh, of what this article had had indicated, and then I'm going to spin it towards supply chain. So um, 47, 50%, I think think the tech number is 47%, said Gen Z is willing to spend 30% more if an immediate service is available or guaranteed. So that means they're on their uh, couches just doing Uber Eats and and, uh, and stuff like that. So they're willing to pay more money for, for immediate gratification. Sustainability and products, companies that believe in sustainability and ESG that we've talked about before, Pete, that is important. So if your product uh, spec is in that realm, the Gen Zs will, will follow. Um, value. Uh, personalized products. I couldn't quite figure this one out because I Googled it a few more times. But to me, mass customization, something that would be specific to me, whether, you know, I kept thinking of those keychains at the Walgreens you went to when you're on vacation with your parents and you'd spin it around and you look for your name, right? And and I'm sure Pete was right there in the middle. I don't know about Doug's. I couldn't find Doug's a lot. But my point with that is that um, mass customization uh, for Gen Z is is of, of, of importance. Political alignment, um, Gen Z will uh, engage and purchase from companies that have their same political values. Um, and this one kind of struck me on both sides. Initially, I said, yeah, I get this. And other times it was surprising that 25% um, are impulse buys, right? Um, which means they're on the couch. And if I can impulse buy this thing and and get it in, in, in a matter of minutes. So the one thing that caught my attention, Pete, which really relates to the supply chain piece of it, is that uh, Gen Z is cool with vintage, retro, and used type of merchandise, right? I have a, a nephew. I don't even remember the name of the website, but he sells all kinds of clothes and 
and, and everything else uh, that they define as vintage, which is crap that you and I pull out of our closet that all of a sudden is worth five times as much as what you and I purchased it for. So, um, so here's the bullets on that, Pete, that I'm getting from the supply chain. E-commerce is here to stay. Now, that's not uh, any um, forward-thinking uh, commentary, but it is going to continue to grow. You know, it was an accelerator during COVID. I don't think it's going to re regress back to 2019 levels. It is going full speed ahead. The one piece that they made mention of is that the creativity that you, they said you have to meet the consumer where they hang out, right? And I'm not talking physically, I'm talking virtually. So you're going to see a lot of engagement and TikTok, um, uh, uh, Twitter. So wherever I am in the moment uh, on my, on my uh, uh, cell phone or whatever, um, advertisers, companies are going to be selling their products in that moment uh, versus a static web page that says, click this link and go here to, to look at your stuff. So there's going to be more um, interface uh, with those two. And the big thing on this, Pete, this is the one thing that I want to talk about is um, finding a returns solution, right? The fact that Gen Z is interested in buying used items, whether you want to call it vintage for clothing, or used for other things is that I've spoken about this before and, and, and you have done as well on some of these things is that once a product is in market, never, ever, ever let it leave that market. Find a way to sell it, repurpose it, donate it. You're just pissing away money trying to get it back to some source of distribution. And so there's going to be um, uh, some disruptors out there that come up with some pretty creative ways is that once it's in market, do not let it leave get rid of it, get it off your books, sell it however you see fit. Uh, and there's lots, lots of strategies. And I would say anybody that's listening to the show that has some extra money and wants to start a side hustle with me, I got all kinds of ideas, Pete, on how you can keep things in market and also make a, a quick buck. I don't want to tell them on the public airways here in fear uh, of losing my competitive advantage, but that is a big deal. I'm going to continue to hype it probably to the point of where I hype drones but there will be a disruptor that'll come up with some great solutions to keep product mm. in market and blow up the concept of returns. And the Gen Zs are willing to participate in that and buy products that fit that, uh, 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 fit that, fit that hole, if you will. So anyway, a little bit all over the place on that one, Pete, but I wanted mm. to bring out Gen Z no. consumer buying habits and how that relates to supply chain. I don't think it's all over the place at all. Um, first of all, being Gen Z sounds kind of awesome. You know, sitting on the couch, <laughs> yeah. ordering kick-ass food, having it delivered, buying crap online. Sounds great. Having everyone sort of agree with you, mm -hmm. you know, politically, um, with your social stance on things, just, just being, always being able to just do whatever is aligned with what you like and not mm -hmm. having to make any trade-offs sounds pretty awesome to me. Um, God bless them, you know? Yeah. I hope they can keep that up. Yeah. Uh, you know, from, from my perspective, the... The, uh, the, the two things you brought up that really struck a bell with me is the returns beastie. Man, you want, you want to talk about how big a problem is when, when such a creative business like ours is still mm -hmm. struggling with it on the daily after like a yep. decade. And we could, we generally, we can come up with some pretty smart ways of dealing with crap. And when we're still just like, oh, you know, after all the things that we've been able to come up with, with reasons to deal with. Have you, have you ever done a return for Amazon at a Whole Foods, Doug? Uh, no, but I've done it at a Kohl's. 
same idea, right? Like, um, you know, at a, at an Amazon, it's a little bit different because they have a kiosk and you, you turn up with your, with your product, self-serve, you do the scan and they have bags for you to put your crap in and you scan it, you put the thing in the kiosk and then it says, Hey, you know, it gives you a little sticker. It says, thanks for coming. And then, you know, you go buy yourself a $25 cheesecake or whatever, cause you're at Whole Foods. But the, um, the thing about it that's, that's interesting is there's no human interaction. Kohl's, same thing, you know, super convenient. You go in, you see somebody, it's like a, you know, other than waiting in line, it's like a 10 second, it's really easy. Mm -hmm. um, UPS stores, same thing. Uh, but the problem with it's great customer interaction, wonderful. But like you said, that stuff is still there. And now they've got to figure out how do we restock it? Do we restock it? What do we do with it? How do we put it in such a way that we can make this thing a moneymaker for us again? And it's, um, man, it's just such a problem. Mm. Has this ever happened to you? It's happened to me a couple of times now where I bought something online. I've gone to execute a return and they've said, just keep it. Here's your money back. Just keep it. Yeah. It's happened to me a couple of times now. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. you know, on that model with, with Cole's Pete, and I don't, I mean, I don't know why they haven't thought of this and maybe they have, right? So take that product. The, what you described as the customer interface is phenomenal. Agree a hundred percent, make it super easy. I don't have to get a box mm -hmm. or whatever. Take the thing in the back, put a new label on it and put it in the corner as far as a, as seen on TV display, Amazon yeah. returns and have a whole section and don't even freaking put it in a truck and take it anywhere. Just literally mm -hmm. walk it to another part of the store and resell sell it. it. Whole Foods could do that. I, I, that's what I mean. Just keep it in market. And even if you got to sell it, get it off your books, whatever. I mean, yeah. it's anyway, I think we're on the same page with that. The other thing I wanted to bring up that you, that you, uh, that you bring up is the Gen Z. And I don't, I don't know what comes out after them. I'm sure that there's, there's another, you know, there'll be another generation mm. with Gen X. God, we're like the worst, you know? Um, but that, but that, that next, that next generation, what Jen's doing, Gen Z is doing, which is fascinating to watch is this, the whole e-commerce thing is kind of evolving with them. It's, it's, uh, I'm not going to say it's passed us by because it certainly hasn't. We're, we're spending bigger than they are. The things that we buy are much bigger and e-commerce remembers services as well as products. So we're the ones that spend like 10 grand on a vacation to Grand Cayman. So don't forget us. Yeah. Um, you know, we're the ones that have absolutely no problem paying our American Express bill for 30 grand on business expenses. So, you know, we're, we're still okay. Uh, but they're, they're going to be the generation, I think, that have the biggest impact on supply chains because they're the ones that are building and creating the expectations that are going to sort of create the models that will build the platform and the foundation for the future of e-commerce and supply chain with what they expect, how they want it to react, um, and, and all those things that will come with it. So theirs is the generation that will ultimately build all those things, Doug. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think they're so important and why we really do need to pay close attention because to what you and I might seem like a, I don't want to say unreasonable, but what might seem to be very granular or very microscopic in their desires and approaches. It's just, it's on, it's honestly what expectations are going to be mm -hmm. in the next 30 or 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Now comes our favorite part of the show, at least for Your me. Favorite part. Yeah. Half, 
Halftime, brought to you by Cap Logistics. This is where Pete and I get to talk about whatever we want to talk about, as crazy as it may sound. Uh, but that's the platform that Cap gives us, and we appreciate that. So, Pete, let her rock and roll, buddy. How, how's your halftime looking today? Yeah, my halftime's kind of fun. So uh, there's been a lot made of how uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China, bears a passing resemblance to Winnie the Pooh. I'm not saying that I believe that, but there are people who do. And amongst uh, the uh, people of Taiwan, it has become a bit of uh, an ongoing joke. And during the recent military uh, activities where the Chinese very easily, quickly, and well uh, surrounded the, the Taiwanese with their navy, the, uh, the Taiwanese Air Force, not long after, did their own exercises. And someone noticed on the Taiwanese Air Force that they had a special patch. So anyone who's ever watched Top Gun or watched, you know, Iron Eagle or, or any, um, any um, movie where they show the Air Force or Naval Aviators knows that these guys wear patches about their units. They wear patches about their, their, um, their air groups, the, the aircraft they're on or the unit that they're with. And it became very popular seemingly overnight in the past 24 hours, Doug, when they noticed that the Taiwanese Air Defense Forces, sort of like their first unit, first response forces, had a very interesting patch. And that patch shows a Taiwanese gray bear punching Winnie the Pooh in the face. Oh, okay. And the, you know, the uh, it, it's pretty clear, pretty clear what the symbolism is supposed to be. It's Taiwan punching China in the face. Now, these were done... Um, for these particular pilots, it says scramble on the bottom and they were done for these particular pilots and the desire for people to buy them has been massive mm. and for t-shirts has been massive, but the, uh, the air wing themselves is not selling them and the air wing themselves is not putting them on t-shirts. It is just for them and they see it as a badge and a mark of honor. But of course, people are already trying to sell them online. So what they're asking is, is that people don't buy them. That it's a, you know, it's a badge of honor. Uh, people are saying you could probably make money and we'd like to support you and all this. And they're saying no. So just an interesting story and an interesting use of symbolism and of, uh, you know, I wonder how Disney would feel about that and the mm. such, but uh, a pretty cool story, Doug. Yeah, it is. It is. So um, my halftime is related to a, uh, a concert that is about ready to kick off at the end of this week, Coachella. Coachella, Coachella, depending on how you want to uh, think of it. And um, it's now a four-day music festival in the Indio Valley uh, out in the desert, right? Um, 250,000 people expected. This one blew my mind, Pete. 167 artists. Like, I don't understand how that, I mean, that's too many. Many stages, Doug. There's many, many venues. Where they'll well, play. When I was going through there, when I was like, okay, I'm not going to count them all. I probably recognized three names, right, uh, as far as uh, as bands on there. Um, uh, Bad Bunny's one of them, and uh, I'm probably out of that demographic. But you know, I, I, it, 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 it's crazy how it's evolved. So 1999 is when it started. It's 20,000 people, and Pearl Jam, which is our our era, 
um, was just the same type of thing that's going on now with Ticketmaster, um, trying to stick it to the man. So they started to sell these things offline uh, without Ticketmaster. And that's kind of how uh, Coachella got started. It was 50 bucks a day. Um, and now it's up to 550 for uh, general admission. And it's uh, on the same grounds where Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers fought to use uh, unionize grape pickers, which I thought was interesting. So Coachella, you know, Pete, I, I, I got to pat myself on the back or pound my chest a little bit. All of that is entry level uh, early childhood education. The place you want to be is at the end of the summer, which is Burning Man um, <laughs> up in the Black Rock Desert. Um, uh. That's that's where the big boys go to graduate after the summer music fest season. So Coachella, I like it. It's kind of interesting. Never been there. I'm never going to go. Um, but when you're ready for the big leagues and uh, can play guitar like Eddie Van Halen, head to Burning Man. That's the place to be. It is freaking expensive. I will give you that. Uh, I don't know if I told you I went there once, Pete, in 2017 and um, dropped a ton of money to go there. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you a whole other story on that one. But Coachella, yeah, that's nice. You want to play guitar like Eddie Van Halen, why don't you drop into Burning Man in the Black Rock Desert at the end of the summer? Doug, when you said a ton of, I was hoping you were going to say acid. Um, it would have made this story like so so much better um i got so much to say about this so first of all uh our youngest son his girlfriend is going to coachella and you know she goes to school out your way she's out in boulder and um and, and this is exactly i know i'm moving the camera everywhere and and um keenan's gonna be so angry i don't care um you know sorority girl in boulder um, her and all of her blonde friends are all going to go to Coachella. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Like, that's all I got to say, man. Like, you know, for me, every girl I ever knew that went to Coachella back in the day, it was just like, how little can I wear and how much Coke can I do for, um, for four or five days for me? It's like all of my rugby buddies I know that went to Woodstock, um, 90, whatever it was, and almost died. Like it was, it was the guys that, that all went to the Woodstock and, and either almost drowned in mud or almost got beat to death when Limp Biscuit played. Um, mm. I am a New Orleans guy, so I love Jazz Fest, which is three days of a pretty awesome music with hundreds of people playing. But there's a reason why it doesn't get out of control. Reason number one is people in New Orleans know how to handle their party. Reason number two is New Orleans police officers will beat you to death if you step out of line. So they know how to take care of it down there. Mm -hmm. um, the other festival that I, I can't, I just can't say enough good things about, man, is Ebony. Um, Ebony Fest. It is, um, it's in New Orleans. And it is, uh, it's urban, they call it urban acts, which is a nice way of saying like R and B and rap. It's, um, it's in New Orleans. It's, it's, uh, now, now they do it at, um, at the uh, smoothie center, but it will be everything from like whatever the, the most current R and B and hip hop acts are all the way back to like the eighties and seventies folks. Like, like you, you may have Diana Ross one year and like like Jay Z's played there, and 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 Beyonce has played there. Uh, 
and then you might have like what's left of the Sugar Hill Gang. <laughs> to the hippity, like you'll have, but it's it's fantastic, man. Like it's yeah. it's fantastic, and it's a whole bunch of days. And, and New Orleans being a, a, a pretty, um, I, I don't want to say integrated city because it's not, but just a, people tend to get along regardless of their ethnic background. It's a lot of fun, and um, always sells out. Everybody wants to play there, so they they kind of get their pick of who plays. But again, it's also super expensive. So mm-hmm. you kind of want to know somebody who can get you a ticket to go. And that's what bums me out about what we're saying here is all these things we're talking about, Jazz Fest, Coachella, Bumbershoot, right? They're all, they're just so expensive, Doug. Where, mm-hmm. Whereas when we were kids, I remember going to Monster Fest, which was Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Ozzy Osbourne, um, Great White, um, White <laughs> Snake, right? I, I think my ticket was like 30 bucks. Yeah. And it was out in some, you know, some muddy, crappy field up in Maine. And we raged all day long and it was the best. So I just wish that people could still go see some great music and not have to pay a lot of money for it. That was an important part of being young. And I, I wish these kids could enjoy it still. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. All right. We're on the back half of, uh, of our show. So I think this is you to jump yeah. up here. Yep. So a lot has been made in the news recently of Alibaba making the decision as a corporation to split themselves up into smaller organizations. Uh, many reasons for this. You can speculate what they are, but one of the biggest is for some of these businesses to go IPO. Mm-hmm. And one of the businesses that's going to go IPO, apparently possibly first, I say the name wrong over and over again. Um, uh, Kaneow? Kenyao. Uh, when I worked at Wayfair, the company that I actually worked for in paper was called Castlegate. And not unlike this particular organization, it, it's the forwarding arm of uh, Alibaba. And they've been very successful, extremely successful in what they do. They offer logistics, distribution, custom, small package service, and just mostly it's the e-commerce side of what Alibaba does. And they have been very successful and um, breaking into markets where Amazon has not. This is the secret sauce of Alibaba. They have been able to find their way in mainland China. They've been able to find their way in many parts of Asia, find their way in India, find their way all throughout the globe where Amazon has at times stumbled, where Amazon has at times found hiccups and maybe not been as uh, fiscally rewarded as Alibaba has. So what they're hoping to do is take this platform and open it up to other companies who want to find that same e-commerce success and do it as an independent organization so that people aren't worried that Alibaba is basically just using it to try to take over their business, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty smart. And it makes me wonder, will Amazon do the same thing? Will Amazon take their uh, distribution services, take their logistics services, and eventually break it off into another business so that they can provide those same services for all kinds of other companies who want to use the platform, but worry that Amazon will simply just take their infrastructure, you know, take their supply chain and go up and offer their own products as mm-hmm. part of it. That'd be fun to watch, Doug. Yeah. Well, they kind of did that with AWS, right? Yep. And I think they intentionally used the acronym versus uh, Amazon in there. And I, I, I've heard, I don't have any specifics on this, but that is, incredibly profitable, successful piece of business. So you're, you're spot on. I mean, Amazon is a phenomenal logistics company. And oh, by the way, they happen to sell some stuff. Um, 
So I don't know if spinning that off is going to basically take away the secret sauce of the whole the whole enchilada there. But uh, if there was another spinoff, I could see that would be it because they definitely have had much success in managing the modern day uh, supply chain. We'll be watching that one pretty closely and then yeah. seeing what happens next. Speaking of uh, modern day supply chains, um, I know you caught this and I'm sure a lot of our user or uh, listeners did uh, a little port shut down last week uh, with the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, uh, a 24-hour, hey, guys, we're flexing our muscles here. We're on a contract that expired, gosh, nine months ago. And, um, you know, we're not the only big entity in town that could uh, threaten a strike, um, also known as UPS. And so um, I thought it was interesting. I thought the timing was interesting. I think there is some connection to flexing muscles at the port, uh, along with the UPS strike possibilities that we spoke about last last year. And it's um, it's funny because for, for the last couple of months, they're like, hey, things have been congested, but it's not anymore. And we don't have any boats off the, off the, the, the port and plenty of uh, capacity, you know, and that's kind of the sales pitch. Uh, and then all of a sudden this, this wrench got thrown in. So I'm interested to see what's going to happen. But here's the two things. Number one is, the, the the consumer and, and companies out there, um, you know, are not going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe a second time because they've already uh, expanded their supply chain to uh, Gulf ports and East Coast ports, Savannah and the likes. Um, so they've already kind of figured it out, not in a reactive mode. Now they're fine tuning uh, that supply chain and managing their ocean freight coming in. Um, I, so I think it won't be as impactful if if there is uh, extended. Let me rephrase that. If it's an extended strike, there will be problems, but uh, uh, work stoppages on again, off again, I think uh, won't be as impactful as they have in the past. But here's the thing, Pete, again, my company, Inland Star Distribution, headquartered in Fresno, California, the breadbasket of the world. The one thing this will impact, because all of the ocean containers are no longer centralized or as many of them in Long Beach and LA, um, is exports. Uh, a lot of it in the agriculture industry that thrives on getting containers repositioned overseas and the amount of money they pay for exports, whether it's grain, powdered milk, almonds, raisins, you name it, uh, from that area of the country, they're going to see their export rates increase uh, because there won't be as many containers in, 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 uh, in LA and Long Beach. And I was talking to my wife about it, believe it or not. She's like, oh, well, they'll pass it on to the consumer. Well, the, the, the consumer is another entity and another buying group outside of the United States. And so what could happen is they're like, what do you mean almonds are X percent higher now? I think I'll just go buy my almonds from Argentina or I won't buy as many almonds from, from California. So I think there's real implications, not necessarily on what you and I spend at the grocery store related to this, but there will be less containers, which will be more expensive. And I believe the agriculture and the farming communities are ones that are going to suffer the most with that, just because the containers are now spread out all over the country. So interesting um, unintended consequence, maybe, of a more um, adaptable supply chain and, and not having everything centered in, in California. So I don't know. That's just my take on it, looking at it from a high level. What do you think? Yeah, this one was kind of interesting for me. Um, I, I, I tried very hard to... Um, I tried very hard to be open-minded last week, Doug. So last Thursday and Friday, the news starts trickling in. 
that, you know, there's some foolishness going on in the West Coast ports. And you're like, eh, okay, whatever. But you've been hearing that um, they were upset about, about lunch breaks. They were really upset about lunch breaks because they weren't, they were, they were unable to stagger their lunch breaks properly. And um, these guys are like, all right, well, I'll take our lunch breaks at once. How's that? How's that hit you? How's that work out for you? Yeah. And then they're like, they, they took all their lunches all off at once and there was nobody working the ports. So it was just like total shutdown. And a port's a really big organism. So you just can't like, once everything stops, it doesn't just like start up again. It takes a while to get everything moving again. So then the, um, the Friday and the Saturday later, it's kind of what everyone, everyone's saying to themselves, did they just kind of like, what's the word the kids are doing today? The, 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 the something the slow quitting what's it called oh, the quiet quit? um quiet, quiet quitting quit. quiet quitting did the labor unions just sort of quiet quit on good friday did they mm. did they just do that and um there wasn't anything official right there, there wasn't like a note everyone passed each other in study hall like hey don't come in tomorrow you know but they they basically did sort of like the blue flu where they all said to one another I'm taking Friday off. I have the right to take Friday off. Good Friday is a floating holiday. I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And they used the legal means, the contractual means to do that. And then people didn't come in to do the backups and they were unable to actually keep the port moving efficiently. Did it on Saturday as well. And they were able to do a work slowdown without making it officially a work slowdown. And it really... Even though there wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of cargo done, you know, really threw a wrench in everything. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that got my attention that seems to get lost in all this. There wasn't a lot of freight. You know, they they only asked so many people to come in because that's how many they needed to work the port. And they didn't need to tell that many people to just, you know, stay home and play Tetris because it, it didn't take a whole lot to screw everything up. I don't think that the Port of Long Beach and management understands just how little you've got to turn the dial down right now mm -hmm. to absolutely turn this into a goat rodeo in that port. And not a lot's coming in because it's all going to these coasts, it's going to Gulf ports. So there's no contract. They're working without one. And they could do some trick fuckery most foul if they wanted to on the West Coast to, to make this thing really nasty. So it's not in anyone's best interest right now to keep this going. But I think that we saw the first salvo. We mm -hmm. saw the first salvo and I think it's going to keep going. Like, I think, I think that this kind of behavior, it's going to make management dig their heels in even harder because mm -hmm. they don't have anything to lose. I think we're going to see a protracted. It's going to keep the contract talks going even longer. Mm. Never thought of that. That's bad, you know, man. Pete. I, I, I don't, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but um, that's why you and I are on our soapbox. I think you just blamed the port strike on Jesus Christ. Oh, never. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not Jesus's fault. No, yeah. no, it's it's um, yeah. I I tried to explain this to someone the other day about why are they, why haven't they just come to a decision already? They're never going to be in a better position ever, yeah. like in my lifetime. They need to negotiate, right? So they're going to make it hurt. They're going to they're going to get what they have to get out of this thing. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about the UPS strike a minute ago, same thing, man. Like they need to get it while they can. There's some sympathy, 
right now for both these organizations. Yeah, they need to get what they can. Key. That is, there yeah. is sympathy out there. So. so, you know, with all that, that's the um, that's it for this week's edition of Global Trade This Week, brought to you by our good friends at Cap Logistics. And um, we thank, as always, we thank all of you for joining us, for listening to us, for watching us. I thank Keenan for um, being back there in his treehouse um, between playing uh, rounds of. Uh, rounds of um was it gold blocks roblox whatever they call it i guess yeah. the kids are playing these days but as always to learn more about cap logistics check out their website at caplogistics.com um doug it's good to see troy back up again it's always yeah, nice to see you him there good to see you as well and we can't wait to see you again next week for another edition of global trade this week take care everybody excellent thanks